Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is a Smart Passive Income podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 51. Timmy. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, who had a crush on Kelly Kapowski on Saved by the Bell, Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up? This is Pat Flynn, and welcome to the 51st session of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. And wow, today today's session... I mean, just the fact that I, I have this guest on my show blows my mind. I mean, I have the honor of having this guest who many of you probably already know. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The 4-Hour Workweek, a book that actually helped shape how I built my first online business back in 2008. And without that book, without that book, The 4-Hour Workweek, I know I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And this podcast and my blog wouldn't be around either. He's also the author of The 4-Hour Body, and then most recently, The 4-Hour Chef. I mean, he's making headlines with it. Uh, we have none other than Mr. Tim Ferriss on the Smart Passive Income podcast today. I'm super stoked about that. I mean, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, and the cool thing is his people reached out to me, which I'm really stoked about. And of course, I'm more than happy to welcome him on, on the show and, and just pick his brain for you here today. Now, I could have talked to him for hours, and I personally had a lot of questions to ask and unfortunately didn't have enough time to ask them. But even more than that, I actually published a blog post um, just yesterday, actually, actually one day before the interview, which happened today. Uh, if you're listening to this in the future, this is uh, the end of November 2012. So just yesterday, I asked my readers on the blog to submit a question if they had one for Tim that I might be able to ask him during the interview. And uh, I I got nearly 400 questions, uh, many of them you know, sort of similar, and I did my best to ask those questions, but many different questions too. And I know I said I was going to give away three copies of The 4-Hour Chef to those whose questions I asked on the, uh, during the interview, but I'm actually going to give away seven total copies of The 4-Hour Chef 
Um, you know, some people I mentioned by name during it, during the interview, and some uh, I realized at the end that uh, you know they, they were actually questions that were inspired by people who had left comments on the blog. So I, you know, I wish I could give books away to everyone, but of course, Tim's team only sent me a, a limited amount of copies to give away. Either way, I hope you get the book, but um, you know, wait until the end of the show to make that call. You know, we're going to talk all about that book for you. So just wait till the end of the show to hear your name. If you did leave a comment or a question on that blog post um, where you could win a free copy, you know, I'm going to mention your name again at the end of the show just to make sure that all seven of you are covered. And again, I wish I could give you copies. Uh, I, I wish I could give copies to everybody. Now, a couple quick notes before I switch to the recording that I did earlier today. Uh, which is about an hour long. I mean, it's jam-packed, full of information. I mean, a ton of links, a ton of names that you should know, books that you should read, strategies, bullet points, stuff that you could write an entire book's worth of notes about. Uh, So as always, you know, I have the show notes for you conveniently at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 51. You know, head to the blog, go there now, or go there after the show to get all the information you need. And if and if you want to buy The 4-Hour Chef and want to go through my affiliate link, which means I get a commission if you go through that specific link. And if you do that, of course, thank you uh, so much in advance. Uh, that affiliate link is smartpassiveincome.com slash 4-HourChef. That's the number 4. So smartpassiveincome.com slash 4-HourChef. Or like I said, you could head over to the show notes, smartpassiveincome.com slash session51 to get everything you need there. Uh, you know how it is. So there are so many more questions I wish I could have asked him, but here's what I pulled out uh, from my brain and from all the questions uh, on the blog post. Enjoy listening. I know you're going to get a lot out of this, and uh, I really know you're going to enjoy the first question I asked him. So let's get right to it. Here's the interview with Tim Ferriss. Hey, Tim, what's up? Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. You know, um, it's funny. Yesterday, I published a blog post telling my audience about this interview with you. And I asked them, if you have a question for Tim, please leave it in the comment section. If it's a good one, I might ask him for you. And right now, there are 384 questions. Um, so well, it's uh, bird by bird, man. Let's <laughs> one at a time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we'll be able to get to all of them. Uh, unfortunately, we'd be here for days. But I'm going to ask a few. Uh, there's some really good questions. And also... We're going to get to, uh, you know, we're going to skip over a lot of great ones too. So if you ever needed a sort of resource for what people want to know from you, uh, that's a great place to go. <laughs> uh, so before we even start, I just want to make sure I say this to you publicly here on the podcast. Just, you know, thank you. I mean, you, thank you. Your book, The Four Hour Work Week, a huge inspiration for me. I know there was a lot of controversy about it, you know, really, like, really four hours. I mean, I, I bet we can all assume that you're working more than four hours in a week at this point especially during the launch of your new book, which we'll get into. But to me, the four-hour work week is not about the four hours exactly. Uh, you know, For any of your four-hour branded books, the four-hour body, the four-hour chef, to me, it's about the idea that we have this ability and we can learn skills necessary to become more efficient, to open our eyes to being able to do things that we never thought was possible or that we could do, whether that's work less hours than we work now so we can spend more time doing the things that matter to us. Uh, For me, it's being with family. For you, it's obviously creating more books and running these amazing experiments and, um, you know, or it's about achieving goals in fitness or or being in the kitchen and just general learning. So again, from all of us uh, here on the Smart Passive Income blog, you know, just thank you. Well, thank you for putting the words into action. So my my pleasure entirely. And just to address 
that topic because I think it's an important one to hit right from the outset. The the objective of the four hour work week is to maximize your per hour output so that you have then control of that resource. Uh, and if you let's say increase your output 10x uh, per hour, then you can do a number of things. You can either reduce then your hours from 40 to 4, say, or you can continue to do what you're doing to maximize the results. So during, during a book launch, for instance, like this, where uh, there are a lot of challenges involved with, let's say, the, the retail boycott. We don't have to get into that right now. But I am utilizing every hour I can, but I'm, I'm applying those hours in the, in the highest leverage places. And I think that's the key, whether it's with the 4-Hour Workweek, the 4-Hour Body, or the 4-Hour Chef, is finding the places where your effort gives you the most uh, in terms of outcome, uh, outcomes and, uh, and results. Yeah, well, thank you for addressing that. I mean, a lot of the questions that my audience was asking was about that. I mean, a lot of people were asking, you know, how do I, how do, I do what you tell me to do when I have a family or when I have another job? I mean, what, what can I do? How can I find more time? And it's not really finding more time. It's uh, enabling yourself to, ha- to, to essentially have more time because your output is more efficient. Yes, that's exactly right. So first question I have for you, actually, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to take you through the four-hour work week, then ask you a couple questions about four-hour body, and then we're going to go into the uh, finally uh, the four-hour chef and finish off with that and hopefully get people super stoked about it uh, as I am um, when we leave this so people can go out and get their own copy if they don't have it already. So first question, how did the four-hour work week become so successful. I mean, the book itself was unique, which helped. But more than that, you just seemed to be everywhere right from the start. Every blog that mattered was talking about the book. You just, you got so popular so fast. How did that happen? How can someone like that with no following who is starting from scratch, maybe they have their own book or a product or a blog, how can they do what you did? Wow. Well, that's, we spend the entire time just talking about that. <laughs> I, I would, I would say that the book was not a success from the very outset. People, I think, missed this. It, it was turned down by 26 publishers. The initial print run was 12,000 copies or so. And yeah, it's I not very many. did not know anything about, yes, not many. It's not enough for, for even partial national distribution. And the, I think the approach I took that was, that was different, perhaps, and uh, the, the way I approached the four-hour body was a more elegant refined approach to what I did with the four hour work week. And there's a blog post called, I think the 12 or 15 lessons learned marketing the four hour body. And you can search for that on, on my blog and it'll pop right up. Sure. It's written by my uh, assistant at the time named Charlie Hone, H O E H N. And the, the, at its, at its purest, the approach I took is very similar to what's echoed in uh, an article called 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly, who is the founding editor of Wired Magazine. Uh, I chose the least crowded channel, i.e. in-person meeting, as opposed to phone or email, to connect with people who are thought leaders in specific audiences, specific blogs, etc., by going to events like South by Southwest Internet, uh, Interactive, Blog World Expo, and so on. And I never hard sell the I never hard sold the book. Uh, what I mean by that is <clears throat> just shouting louder or or trying to do a better job of selling in a very mechanized way mm. is not the best way to to find a fit for your content. If we're talking about content, 
my general approach was, because I knew no one, is I would, I would sit in on a session, listen to panelists on topics that interested me, then approach the moderator of the panel and, and give them 10 seconds on who I was and ask them who they thought I might get along with, who was attending the event, whether it was a speaker or an attendee. And then I would, I would meet person after person approaching things very similarly and ask each person, is there anyone else you think I should meet while I'm here? And I asked a lot of questions. Uh, what I mean by that is from the very outset, I wanted to understand what people were doing, uh, what they were planning on doing, what they did outside of work. And then if they asked me, well, what are you up to? I would say, oh, I'm working on my first book. It's pretty nerve wracking. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here to try to figure out digital because my publisher has their hand in everything else. And this is really the only thing that I can do myself. And I don't know the first thing. And I would pretty much stop there and then go back to asking them questions. And if they dug deeper, what is your book about? Or, oh, really? And, and, and they, they asked about certain aspects, I would answer it. And at the very end, if someone genuinely seemed interested, and if not, I never pushed it. If someone genuinely seemed interested, I would say, look, I have a bunch of advanced copies that I, I, that I, I don't have places to send. If you'd like, I could just, I don't necessarily think you'd like the entire book, but I could use post-it notes to pick the 20 pages I think you would really like and send it off to you if you'd like that. And if they said yes, great. If they said no, I've got too much going on, that was fine too. And what that ensured was a few things. Number one, not only did I identify, in many cases, single author blogs with audiences of 100,000 or more, in many cases, where the content was a perfect fit because they'd gone through these filters of just uh, questioning back and forth, uh, secondly, I ensured that I was developing friendships and relationships with people I liked as people anyway, and who liked me as a person anyway, so that when I had the next launch, the four hour body, when I had the launch after that, the four hour chef, these are the same people I am still friends with starting in 2007. So it was relationship building as opposed to transactional. And those are a few of the things I would say. My approach was very much informed by a book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And I would encourage people to look at The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, not the new one for the internet or anything like that. Get the original edition. And uh, you know, with that, <clears throat> in the beginning, there is a, a fair amount of grunt work involved. And I talk about this in the 4-Hour Workweek. Whenever you're starting a new business or trying a new industry or testing a new uh, type of marketing campaign, you have to throw a lot at the wall and see what sticks before you can do an 80-20 analysis. And so with the 4-Hour Workweek, I mean, I threw in everything, including the kitchen sink. Most of it didn't work. A handful of things did work. And then I applied those much more effectively and efficiently with the four hour body, which is why I think the article, uh, you know, lessons learned marketing the four hour body is, is a good encapsulation. Awesome. Okay. For, so for everyone listening, all those books and all the links that uh, Tim just mentioned, they're going to be in the show notes, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 51. Um, now there's a couple key points I want to point out there. And it's funny you mentioned how you did the grunt work and you went to these events like blog world expo and started just building relationships with people. And I really like how you use the word friendships because it's, that's what you want to do. You, you don't want to build relationships just to build a relationship for your business. You actually want to build friendships because 
that's what people are, people are going to remember you. They're going to do you favors. And, and that's where all this, I think, comes from. And I remember a story that uh, two friends of mine, Jeremy and Jason from Internet Business Mastery, they told me a story about when they first met you, actually, uh, which was Blog World Expo, I think, 2007 or 2008, I think. And they're like, oh, this guy named Tim came up to us and he was talking about, you know, he's just asking us questions and talking about his book. And, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. But then other people started talking about him. So we got in contact with him. And that's how, that's how I learned about you. You was huh. was through them. So uh, your strategy that I mean worked on me, and uh, you know you didn't you didn't reach out to me directly, but it was someone who had influence on me that you reached out to. And I think really you never know exactly the returns on something like that. But like you said, the more you throw at the wall, the more is going to stick. And you know some people that you build a relationship with, it might not amount to anything. But the more people you build relationships with and actual friendships, that I mean it can't hurt. Yeah, no, it can't hurt. And a few other things I would say. Number one is that if you meet a really high-profile blogger, and you know, in many ways the tables have been flipped now that I have a blog that gets you know 1.2 million uniques a month, I get pitched all the time. I mean, all the time. And uh, I would say, you know, my assistant gets a couple hundred emails a day. 80, 80 plus percent are just pitches of some type. So I get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And someone has to trust, well, speaking personally, I have to trust the messenger before I'm going to trust the message, which is at a point I think a lot of people miss. So they'll say, hey, I have this book. It's a perfect fit for your audience. I know it, blah, 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 which is really presumptive, presumptive first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, if I don't know you and I'm worried like, wow, what if I endorse this book and then this guy goes out and does something really stupid that reflects badly on me, right. I am not going to do it. And so you, it, it really pays off to get to know people on a personal level and to have that human-to-human interaction. The second thing I would say is that oftentimes the way to get to the, the biggest outlets, if we're talking about media, and there's a lot more to the launch than just PR and media, it, the indirect path is often the best path. So one of the things that I did is I looked at the – this was back in the day, so things have changed a bit, but you can still do this. I looked at the blog roles, i.e. the lists of blogs that the – uh, the high traffic bloggers had on, on their own blogs. And I started to note not necessarily traffic leaders, but thought leaders with smaller blogs that were read by a lot of the high traffic blogs. And so I went to those guys. I went to the thought leadership blogs that didn't necessarily have millions of uniques or whatever, and put a lot of thought into what type of content I could provide them that would be of value to their audiences as much time as I would have spent pitching the New York Times. And I know because I did both. And then when the thought leaders put my stuff into the sort of common circulation, that gave the traffic leaders the introduction and the permission effectively to link to that content or put it on their homepage, which is how I think I, I triggered a lot of these snowball effects. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. And, and also something else you mentioned actually um, – that I learned from Derek Halpern, who was a show you were on recently, and also heard you and Ramit talking about uh, Ramit Sethi. Um, you were talking about how also if you wanted to reach these thought leaders and, and, and top bloggers and people with big amounts of subscribers is to actually put their advice into action and yeah. do it and kill it and crush it and then send them information about how much they've helped them. Because everyone, I mean... That's how people get on my radar. They follow my advice. They and they, you know, Benny Sue, for example, started an iPhone application company because I did one too, and he got App of the Week and started making tens of thousands of dollars a day. Um, yeah. 
and you know that I, of course I'm going to share him. I mean, he took my advice. So, right. um, and if you can combine that with what you just said, so maybe I take your advice, but someone else that you know shares, Hey, there's this guy named Pat that took your advice to him. You guys, you should check him out. I mean, that's, that's going to be worth even doubly. I guess. Absolutely. And do your homework. I mean, it's, what really, if if you're trying to promote online, which I assume a lot of people will be, do not treat a blogger like an afterthought compared to traditional media. It's really irritating and it's it's completely misplaced priorities in the sense that <clears throat> you know, the, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, has a subscriber base of something like 2 million, uh, 2.1 million or so. So if you have a blog that gets 2 million uniques, you should treat an email to that person as j- just as important as uh, an email pitch or query to the editor-in-chief of whatever section uh, or of the, New York, of the Wall Street Journal or a section head. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, and it's some type of spammy template or it's a note that just says, this is perfect, here it is attached, thanks so much, I would really appreciate you running it at this time. Like, oh my, it's just like, you're not the only busy person in the world. So, you know, be, have hat in hand. The sort of bull in a china shop bravado approach is not the best approach, which is perhaps funny to hear from me because think pe- some people think of me as like a very boisterous guy with a lot of swagger and stuff. But when, when I am talking to people about what I am up to, I really, I do not hard sell. And if I make a pitch, I even close my emails with giving them an easy out. And I'll say, I, you know, I really appreciate you reading this far. If you can't do it, I totally understand. But you know, even even a sentence or two in a response would mean the world to me. You know, thanks so much. Have a great week. I I do not. I don't close with you know thanks for your favorable response. It's <laughs> <laughs> so generic, Sonny. Uh, yeah, that that totally aligns with kind of how I run my business and how a lot of the SPI re- readers and listeners know how I treat them. And I think really this all comes down to just building relationships with people, human human interaction, and really just treating people with respect. Really. Um, now, we've been talking about a lot of things. Uh, we've covered actually a lot of questions that I had already, so I'm going to skip around. The next question I have, which was asked by probably the most people out of the comments on the blog post I was talking about, um, is this. You know, It's 2012 now, almost 2013. 4-Hour Workweek was written in 2007, second edition, December 2009. A lot of the principles, I'm sure, still apply. I mean, they, they do, obviously. Um, but what things do you feel need to be updated in the, in the book, and, and how would you address those updates today? Maybe one or two things. Uh, the, the principles all apply. Uh, and I, th- I think that what is important, what is it, it's important to realize that a doctor can prescribe medicine, but the patient has to take the medicine, number one. Number two, I don't have any desire to be a guru in the sense that, and I, I never use that word when describing myself, but some other media do, yeah. uh, because a guru implies that people come to me for answers. My job is to create independent learners and entrepreneurs who do not need me. So I want to make myself obsolete as quickly as possible. Here's why I say that. The, uh, there are a lot of links in the book that I'm sure need to be updated. Or there are online resources, let's say, for landing page testing. Maybe I would recommend unbounce.com instead of something else that is in the book. Uh, maybe for email testing or even Google Keyword Tool, I would have separate suggestions and would point people to average monthly volume. Or I would point them to an article that Noah Kagan of AppSumo wrote on my blog about uh, 
testing and market validation, which is very much worth reading for anyone who's listening to this. But here's the thing. <clears throat> All of the principles, the broader techniques and principles are the same. They still apply. So what I would say is if, if you are not able or willing to take the time to discover some of those new tools on your own, you're absolving yourself of the responsibility of making things happen. And you can't do that. You cannot do that. So yes, like I, I, do, I would certainly hope to have a revised edition in the next uh, in the next few years. But the book gives you all of the raw materials and the portfolio of techniques that you need. Mm-hmm. If it's getting, let's say, a new source for drop shipping or identifying manufacturing aside from contract manufacturing, aside from Alibaba.com, it's not hard to figure that out within five minutes of of Googling. So I would just say that <clears throat> fortunately. The, 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 the principles themselves, like Pareto's law, Parkinson's law, fear setting, whatever they might be, those are all timeless. Those are things that people have been doing since Seneca and long before, certainly, thousands of years. Um, and I think that it is, it is that philosophical operating system, choosing the distributed lifestyle design approach as opposed to the deferred life plan, for instance, that has the greater impact. And then you know, the box of crayons, the, the, the set of tools du jour is going to continually change. So a book will never be uh, fully up to date with any type of, let's say, online resources. But those are things that people can find themselves. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Now let's move on to uh, The 4-Hour Body because I do, I do want to make sure we have enough time to talk about The 4-Hour Chef. Um, 4-Hour Body, your second book. Again, the second time you hit the New York Times bestseller list again. Congratulations. Now this book's a little different. It's a fatty sort of choose your own adventure type book, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but I really loved about it. And, uh, you know, it's all about hacking your body and you actually used yourself as a, as a test vehicle. I mean, this is years of research on yourself. I mean, just quick side question. Were were there any like side effects from all the tests that you've run on yourself? (laughs) Well, I, I tested everything on myself and some of the, the experiments that ended up producing safe, replicable results were the ones that I, I included and recommended. There were certainly things that didn't work out so well. For instance, uh, nothing, you know, no crazy permanent stuff, but <laughs> I did try at one point to experiment with something called resveratrol, uh, which is very, is best known for extending lifespan in certain types of, of lab animals. And it can do so pretty dramatically. Uh, what I was very interested in was uh, a, a set of s- studies that had been done to produce what they called super rat. And super rat had twice the endurance of the control rat. And they achieved that by using high-dose resveratrol. <laughs> so I decided to consume, I think it was 60 days of the bottle-recommended dosage. So 60 days of resveratrol in about two hours. And okay. <laughs> the and I did my research. Everything should have been fine. What What was not fine is... Uh, not on the label itself, but I found out later, the product that I consumed was cut with something called Emodin. And Emodin is a laxative. So oh, nice. Not so nice, actually. 60 days of resveratrol <laughs> plus 60 days of laxative. And that was not a fun afternoon. So for 60 days, you had uh, in- increased bowel movement. No, I'm just kidding. 60 days worth of increase. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, it was... Uh, not recommended, but the the point being, you know, I do a lot of this crazy guinea pig stuff so that other people don't have to. And then I take what I can replicate, what other people are able to duplicate safely, and I share it. And I mean, it's been awesome 
to look at the results of the four hour body. And every time I have a book come out, I'm sure you've seen this. There are people who are like, ah, oh, that's a con. That guy's a scam. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, be patient. First of all, you don't have any evidence to even remotely have that accusation. But secondly, be patient. And I will let my readers prove you wrong. And so now it's like I can point to dozens of people who have lost you know, 170 pounds, gotten off of insulin, people who have run ultra marathons after eight to 12 weeks of training, people who are you know, tripling. I actually found out last week that uh, a guy started powerlifting after the four-hour body. So this is, it cannot be longer than like two years ago. Mm-hmm. Recently became a world champion in powerlifting. Wow. <laughs> that's that's reading, sick. Reading the four-hour body. Uh, so I like letting my readers prove the critics wrong, uh, which is, which is I think, the most gratifying, fun way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you later in the interview, you know, what, what, what excites you about what you do? And I, and I have a feeling that that's what it is. It's just, you know, being able to see the results from everything that you've learned and, and put into paper. That's it. That's it, man. I, I, what gets me excited is spending a lot of blood, sweat, and tears figuring something out and then teaching people to be better than I am at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like Love people that. think that I can learn things quickly and I can uh, because of this, you know, the method that I use, which is what is the focus of the four hour chef. But <clears throat> whatever I learn, I can teach someone else to be better at. And that's what gets me super excited is the only reason I keep doing this book stuff, because let's face it, books are a pain in the ass to write. They're really, really, I find them very, very hard, particularly because I, I pick these enormous chooser. <laughs> uh, but the only reason I do it is because of the feedback. So you telling me about how you read the book and it affected your business, meeting a guy named Sergio two weeks ago who let me try on his old jacket with him. In other words, he was in his jacket and then he said, okay, now put your arms inside it. And then he was able to button it in front of us because he'd lost 130, 150 pounds on the diet. That's awesome. That's the only reason I keep doing this stuff. That's awesome. Now, one one last question. This is actually from Ryan on the Smart Passive Income blog uh, about the Four Hour Body, um, and and pretty much all your other books, actually. Um, so he 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 says, I would love to hear Tim give advice on eating well, staying in shape, and meeting income goals when you have a family, kids, a mortgage, and other major responsibilities that absorb time and money. I think this is most of my audience actually uh, feel that way. So basically, how do you maximize potential in fitness, finance, and nutrition? when you have limited time to yourself and, and just limited resources? Uh, the, so the first thing I'd say is don't focus on all three at once. Do not try to adopt multiple habits at once. Set one new habit. And uh, a, a helpful tool for doing that is, is actually an app called Lyft uh, on, on, on iOS, on Apple, that I've uh, actually invested in. So it was incubated by Evan Biz of, of Twitter, and then uh, Ev contacted me, and I was, the f- I think, the first outside investor in Lyft. But it's a very simple way that people have been able to, for instance, keep track uh, and stay on track with the slow-carb diet. And I'm going to have some really awesome data to share in the next week or so about that. But the, the second thing I would point out <clears throat> is that you, there are thousands of models out there to emulate. So I don't have kids. That's true. I fully plan on having kids. But you don't have to wait for me to have kids to show you how to do it, right? I mean, Patrick has kids, right? Yeah, two kids. Okay, well, bam. Okay, so look at what Patrick's doing for the income side of things. Fitness, you could look at, there are plenty of people. Kelly Starrett, for instance, in San Francisco, 
Uh, Tracy, who is in the four hour body, who lost 120 pounds and is just, you know, jacked. Uh, she's amazing. She has two kids and she's 40 something and has a mortgage, I'm sure. Uh, so I would look at, look at those people. And, and I think that it is valuable not only to show you what they do, but quite frankly, just to remove those as excuses for inactivity and not taking action. Yeah, absolutely. For every limitation that you could possibly bring up as a reason for never trying, there's someone who has beaten it. Do you know what I mean? It's whether that's, uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, I can't climb Mount Kilimanjaro because my knee, like I have an old knee injury. I'm like, really? I know a guy with no arms and no legs. This is a real story who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro military crawl. Jesus. Aim on you. No, I don't buy it. You're bum knee. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, have, a, that's a great way to look at it. I never thought of it that way. But I, what I tend to do, like whenever I'm getting pessimistic, and it happens to everyone, but whenever I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I could do this, but I can't because of fill in the blank, I ask myself like, all right, well, who has done this with far more handicaps than me, with far more problems than I and there are always examples but as certainly like family mortgage handling all of that there are a lot of very accomplished people certainly more accomplished and more effective than I am uh, to emulate so I would just say look for models look for models yeah absolutely I think that's really important that, that's a great uh, that's a great response thank you so now let's get into the four-hour chef the simple path to cooking like a pro learning anything and living the good life. So I want to hear from you, Tim. Like, give, give us your your pitch. You know, we're in the elevator together. I say, hey, what do you got working on? Uh, what are you working on? Oh, the Four Hour Chef. What's that about? K- kind of give us a sure. You know, why why are we interested in it? <laughs> so the the Four Hour Chef is the cookbook for people who don't buy cookbooks. Uh, much like the Zen, much like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is not really about motorcycles. Uh, this book is a guide to all things related to accelerated learning disguised as a cookbook for food. And the stories are told through my adventures and misadventures in the world of food. And I chose cooking because it was a skill that I had failed multiple times before. I had quit many times before. And I wanted to show my readers from start to finish how I tackle a complex skill. And I also wanted to share with them that process, which is meta-learning. And illustrate with you know thousand plus photographs and diagrams and everything that it's the same exact process I apply to learning foreign languages, the same process I applied to go from nothing to world championships in tango in five and a half months, the same process I applied to Japanese horseback archery. It's all the same. So there is the grandest recipe of all, which is this this process of meta learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that of all of the things you could do in your life, the highest leverage thing is to increase increase your learning ability. Uh, and that's true for you. It's true for your family. Uh, so what I've said to people is, number one, this if I had the resources and access to people that I do now, I, in t- if, I, if I had had it in 2007, I would have written The 4-Hour Chef first, before the 4-Hour Workweek, before the 4-Hour Body. And secondly, that it completes this trilogy in a sense. And that is all of the principles in The 4-Hour Chef, almost all of them, people have seen in the other two books, like the 80-20 uh, principle, for instance. Mm. Uh, but I'm a huge Ben Franklin fan, and I've always aspired to, to master his trinity, which was uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
So for me, healthy was for our body, wealthy was for our work week, and then wise is the four-hour chef. Um, so I think the three go together really well. But in many ways, I think this is my most important book. And thankfully, even some of some of my most cynical friends think it's my best book. So I'm happy about that. So it was a pain in the ass to put together. <laughs> nice. Well, congratulations on getting out. Again, it's another one of those choose your own adventure type books, super colorful photos. And, and you know, I'm definitely looking forward to getting my copy very soon. Now, there was a quote that you had it actually in the four hour work week that says, uh, it is far more lucrative and fun to leverage your strengths instead of attempting to fix all the chinks in your armor. I love that quote. Um, you know, the 80-20 rule. Mm -hmm. But then he here you are cooking, and you failed at it many times. Um, you know, what? why why cooking? Is it because of the health benefits and, and, and things like that, or is it because, you know, we all need to eat? Um, you know, how does it differ from, or, or is, it, is it not even considered a chink in your armor? It's just something that you should have uh, a skill for. Well, I wanted to figure out why I'd failed at it, and I think that that helps everyone to figure out why they've failed at other things whether that's trying to learn the guitar, whether that's trying to learn foreign language, whether that's trying to lose weight. I wanted to figure out why I'd failed at cooking. And uh, there are some really clear reasons. I mean, I was trying to adopt four or five habits at once, i.e. grocery shopping, prepping, cooking, cleanup, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to one at a time. So when most people try to learn how to cook, they've never done all of those things to start with. And now they're trying to to incorporate four or five at a time. So it's like, how can you eliminate cleanup? How can you eliminate grocery shopping? There are some pretty interesting ways to do that, very non-obvious ways. And then you can just focus on the cooking and voila, like boom, problem solved. And now you know, in two weeks, you're making stuff that could be served in a restaurant, which is pretty wild. It took me a long time to figure that out. The second thing is, even if you hate cooking and never make a single dish in the book, uh, what this book will do is it'll take your sensory experience of food from black and white to HD in a million colors. Nice. That will change your life. I guarantee every single person listening to this. My experience of food now, it's, it's literally like tiny black and white TV to IMAX. I mean, every meal that I have because my ability to pull out smells and flavors and sensations and whatnot is so much higher. It's kind of like spidey sense compared to what I had before. Mm -hmm. And you're going to eat uh, ostensibly unless you have some superpower. People are going to eat until the day they die, probably three times a day. So you might as well spend a week playing around with things so that you can improve your experience that dramatically. Um, and there are all sorts of other reasons. Like if you want a mating advantage, whether it's keeping your uh, life partner happy or happier or actually catching and keeping the one or just if you're looking to have more fun like cooking is the mating advantage uh, there are so many reasons why even if you hate cooking uh, it's worth taking a look at um, and I had when I before I started this book I mean I I'm not kidding I had the, the video that was uh, for a while most popular related to me and cooking was me microwaving liquid egg whites in plastic containers. Uh, and the my house was like mustard and white wine in the fridge and olive oil in the freezer. I mean, it was, it was, uh -huh. I watched that video. Yeah. I was really starting from ground zero. Um, we'll see, we'll see, but it's been fun to watch the feedback on Twitter and Facebook where people are you know, making, on their first try, you know, the best dish they've ever made in their lives. Which 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was following your Facebook for a while, and and some people were saying, you know, I've had the best scrambled eggs I've ever had in my life, thanks to you, and things like that. I was like, man, I, well, who's not going to pick up the book after reading something like that? Yeah, and it's it's so easy. Uh, I mean, when you get to the highest levels, when you're talking to the best chefs in the world, they don't try to complicate it for you. And that's what I realized is that when you're talking to a lot of people who are who are kind of good or really want to prevent you from being part of their world because they want to be some like weird high priest of the blogosphere or whatever. Mm-hmm. They don't, they complicate things. But when you talk to like the Michael Jordans of cooking, like Grant Ackett's Adelini in Chicago, where I spent two or three days, which was the number one ranked restaurant in the U S uh, while I was writing the book or Marco Canora of hearth in New York city, or, uh, you name it. I mean, Joshua Skeens of Saison in, in San Francisco they are happy to give you simple techniques that will make you one of the best home cooks in the city. I mean, it's, it's does not have to be complicated at all. Yeah. That's all I, again, like I said, I'm really looking forward to this book. Um, I am actually the chef in, in my house too. And, and, um, cool. I love to cook. I love to cook and I, I want to master it as much as possible just to, uh, kind of expand my arsenal at home and keep the taste buds happy. Yeah. And I would, I would also say one other thing, which is, <clears throat> I have actually started to look at at cooking because let's face it, like if you make decent income, you can eat out. And my my feeling for the longest time was, well, why the hell would I cook at home when I've worked this hard to get the money so that I can just eat out? I can avoid it altogether. It's just inconvenient to cook. And and then I realized, and this is borrowed from a writer named Anne Lamott, who wrote this book, Bird by Bird, which is one of my favorites, yeah. but she said, you know, sometimes you realize that it's not the caffeine and the tea that you needed. It's the tea ceremony itself that you needed. And I find uh, cooking, even if it's five minutes of prep, but you just are very present state aware to be like a tea ceremony. I mean, it's very meditative and slowing down for that five minutes of the day to take care of that. Just it dramatically reduces anxiety and feeling of being overwhelmed and rushed so well, I think because it uses all five senses, that it's just become, that's become my meditation. It's like when I go to the gym, that's my moving meditation. When I, when I cook in the kitchen, that is also when I take time out to meditate, basically. Mm-hmm. There's actually this, a, a question from uh, Marjorie here on the blog. She's actually a food critic. Uh, she uh, is a writer. And she was getting like kind of skewed on the, on the combination of efficiency and food. It didn't quite fit for her. And so kind of hearing what you say, like she's worried about, you know, incorporating efficiency so much that you kind of lose the joy in cooking, but it still sounds like you are enjoying what you do and you're enjoying the food and using it as as meditative quality uh, in your life, but you're just making it less wasteful for your time or, um, yeah, in the beginning, here's the thing. I have nothing against long meals. I actually, if, if you're looking to ensure your marriage succeeds, for instance, or if you want to have the highest self-reported well-being, which is a fancy way of saying happiness, <laughs> the best predictor of that is long meals with family and friends, you know, two or three times a week. So I love having long meals. If you are trying to teach someone to learn a new skill that they find intimidating, like cooking, however, you have to start with, with very easy, very convenient solutions that kind of blow their minds and give them positive feedback and early wins. So I have nothing wrong at all with, uh, with spending 
a lot of time on food and having dinners and whatnot, if that is what gives you the most joy, absolutely go for it. It's not like I speed read poetry. You know what I mean? There (laughs) are places to maximize efficiency and there are places to really relish the experience. And one of the biggest issues, I think, in the United States and elsewhere is people are so focused on achievement that they have no appreciation for what they already have. A big part of learning to cook, honestly, was slowing down and, you know, really slowing down to, to speed up, if that makes sense, like yeah. to get better results in my life everywhere, to slow down in a few places. And one of those places was food. But in the very beginning, when you're teaching people to overcome fear of the kitchen, a fear of ingredients, a fear of all that stuff, you have to keep it simple and you have to keep it super convenient. Right. So this is a cookbook, but really it's about the efficiency of learning. So let, let's actually break this down a little bit. I'm going to, you know, I'm actually my wife for my birthday. My 30th birthday is coming up on December 6th. And um, my wife got me some free passes to go take archery lessons. And, right. you know, since watching Hunger Games and all these zombie movies, you know, Walking Dead, um, I'm totally into like bows and arrows right now. But yeah. I've, I've never touched one. And so if I'm applying meta learning, you know, efficient learning to archery like tell me kind of in, in a couple in a minute or two like what i need to do how, how would i break this down um and so when i go take lessons on december 6 i'm going to you know hit the bullseye or whatever yeah okay so th- i have a couple of suggestions one of the one of the approaches that i take often with different skills is something that i call no stakes practice so stakes like s-t-a-k-e-s mm-hmm. For instance, uh, the worst time to learn knife skills is when you're under pressure to make a meal. So the best the best way to learn knife skills is to get something like a lettuce knife, which has the same shape as a chef's knife, but that you can't cut yourself with, and to practice the proper techniques, technique on something like celery, for instance. Right? If you want to learn how to use a skillet uh, and sort of flip the food with that wrist motion, you don't want to practice when you're going to splatter scrambled eggs all over the place. So you get dried beans, you put them in a skillet, and then you kneel on, let's say, a carpet or something, and you practice there. Uh, I've applied that to marksmanship as well, where I've I've used, let's say, BB and pellet replicas of real firearms to train in my house, where I can shoot just a, like a cardboard box with some towels stuffed inside it. And you could do the same thing with archery. So if you want to have like that, the best technical ability and and get in your technique. Uh, without always having to go to the range, let's say, mm-hmm. there is, um, I have two of them in my house right now. Uh, look at archery tag. This is like the coolest thing ever. Uh, archery tag is like laser tag, but you're using bows and arrows. It is like, it's the coolest, the coolest thing ever. Are you serious? Okay, I'm there. Totally tipped arrows, but they fly just like real arrows, and you're using a real bow, a real recurve bow. And you wear face gear or headgear like, uh, paintball. And it is the coolest oh thing I've probably ever seen. Um, and <clears throat> using that, you could get a target, like an archery tag target or some other type of target. Uh, could even be just a cardboard box with a hole cut in the center and you have to get, get into the hole. And you could work on your technique for an hour at home uh, and, and really work on refining your technique again when there's no pressure of hitting the bullseye. Um, this, is, uh, this is also something that is uh, is very well applied to basketball. So if you're shooting, let's say, basketball, you don't want to go to the gym and start training immediately shooting basketball with a bunch of other people around the same hoop when you're embarrassed to miss. 
what you're most concerned with in basketball is, is making sure that the ball travels in a straight line. Okay. So you could just practice shooting at a line on the wall in the gym until you have that, that straight line shot. It's not deviating left and right. And then you go to, and you'll make three times as much progress. Um, so that would be, uh, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of hacking archery. Yeah. That's uh, no stakes, meaning no pressure, just yeah. practicing with no regrets or no worries. Yeah, exactly. And then another thing with archery specifically, as I would say, for anything that really involves <clears throat> uh, hand-eye uh, hand, hand coordination, don't move your head when you shoot. Keep your head still. Uh, you'll usually be knocking it with, let's say, three fingers and pulling it back to the corner of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Do not take the follow-through very seriously and, and remain still until like a second after the arrow hits its target. Um, but uh, I'm excited for you, man. Archery is so rad it's one of the coolest coolest Dude, we'll have to we'll have to do our tree tag someday yeah oh it's the coolest <laughs> um okay so i can see this sort of strategy kind of breaking things down figuring you know like you said you know the 80 20 rule figuring out what's going to maximize my effort um as opposed to learning everything about it right away how do i how would i or somebody apply this to say um you know marketing for example something that doesn't have sort of a uh, you know, it's not like language or or fencing or uh, you know uh, tango dancing or anything like that. Like, can this be applied to something kind of a little bit more abstract like that? Uh, yeah, there's no difference actually. the The problem with when people say marketing, that's a lot like saying I want to be happy or I want no even worse, I want to be successful. Okay, well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, we have to get very specific, and so you can actually combine the 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 DEAL of the four hour work week, you know, the definition, elimination, automation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You can combine that with the meta learning. So first we have to talk about, and this is the process of deconstruction, which is the first step in meta learning, is what exactly are we talking about? Like let's break this down into specifics. So if we're talking about marketing, what do we mean? And so to me, for instance, marketing means knowing precisely who your 1,000 ideal customers are their behaviors, their age, their gender, their location, uh, their their hobbies, other media outlets that they might read, so specifically that you can then design an ideal product for them. To me, that is marketing. Now, there are other types of paid acquisition, paid advertising, public relations, media, etc. But I would say once we get specific, then you can absolutely break it down. And uh, so many of the approaches to language, say, would apply if you're talking about finding the anomalies. So a big part of, of meta-learning is finding people who are uncommonly good at something uh, and, and trying to model them. And Michelle Thomas, for language, is an example. M-I-C-H-E-L Thomas, who was a Holocaust survivor and then a, an intelligence officer. Another person would be Daniel Tammet, who learned uh, Icelandic well enough in seven days to be interviewed. So, so you have to ask yourself, like, all right, who out there is really good at marketing who seems to use the, the minimal effective dose, right? Mm-hmm. Could be could be looking at someone like me, for instance. I mean, I, I post blog posts traditionally like once every two to four weeks. Very, very infrequent. And I have a blog post called, you know, how to build a high traffic blog without killing yourself. Uh, it could be someone who is a copywriter, for instance, and has built uh, built sort of a domain that way. If we're talking about copywriting as a, as a, as a one-to-many tool 
for uh, acquiring customers. Uh, so I think it absolutely can be applied. And the teachers don't have to be in person. I mean, if you talk to a lot of the best direct response marketers out there, they'll talk about Claude Hopkins, you know, the, the uh, scientific advertising, mm-hmm. public domain. You can get it for free. Uh, they'll talk about Ogilvy on advertising. They'll talk about Capels for, uh, for copywriting. So you can absolutely take any skill that I've encountered and break it down using meta learning, no doubt whatsoever. And I talk about investing as another, as another example in the book. And I look at sort of what Warren Buffett has done, what I've done with startups. And uh, I've applied a lot of it to investing. I mean, one thing that people miss is in the startup world, I have, I have right now will probably make more this year from my startups than all of my book royalties combined. And it's because I applied this same methodology to investing. So I, I haven't yet found something it doesn't apply to. That's awesome. This is, this is good stuff. Now, um, of course, I, I, I don't want to touch on this too much because I know you've talked about it so much already and people can pretty much get the same information elsewhere about, you know, this book is available just through Amazon. You know, you can't go to Barnes and Noble to get it. You can't go to independent bookstores to get it. Um, you know, and, and the reason is because those bookstores don't want to, I mean, you are actually the first kind of uh, big time publisher who's signed on with Amazon and those bookstores don't want to have Amazon products in their stores, which, you know, we could talk about this forever too and just kind of really is that the right strategy and all that, you know, so on and so forth. So my question for you is, you know, we don't need to get into too much detail about that specifically, but just where do you think the publishing industry is, is headed? Um, you know, I'm starting to write books right now. I'm starting, I'm actually halfway through a Kindle book and uh, another book on another platform. And, you know, I'm just so curious since you're in this, and you are at the forefront of these new sort of uh, strategies, and 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 you're right in the middle of it. I mean, what what are your thoughts? Do you, do you have any um, recommendations for people who are looking to publish books, or those who are already publishing books that um, you might have some for, uh, you know future insight on? Uh, it's a very fragmented business. Uh, so the book is is it's the first major book through Amazon Publishing. There are independent bookstores that are carrying it, but it's it's really being boycotted by the vast majority, and like you said, including all of Barnes and Noble. Uh, the there are a few bits of advice that I would give, uh, and I'll give a couple of resources first. So first, I had a very long conversation with Ramit Sethi uh, about self publishing versus traditional publishing, and I think a lot of it still applies. and And so you could search both of our names and self publishing, and it'll pop up. The second is Understanding the general traditional book publishing process, I think, is a, is is a valuable investment of time. Just so you, just so you understand what has been done for several, probably several hundred years now. Right. There's an author 101 series written by Rick Frischman, F R I S H M A N, which is really worth looking at. And the the best selling book publicity and PR, I think, is one of them in the series. Is also very worth checking out just for the PR approach that he advocates, which I found very, very helpful in some respects. Uh, I do think that, of course, things are trending towards digital, at least if we're talking about uh, certain demographics in the U.S. and certainly at the coasts for the, for the most part. But uh, if you want, in short, if you want the credibility of being a New York Times bestselling author, then it is your odds are dramatically improved dramatically dramatically improved if you go through traditional the traditional process and traditional distribution because the new york times rewards 
a, a variety, a distribute. Uh, I'm sorry, a variety of reporting sources, predominantly at print retail. Mm-hmm. All right. So the boycott, for instance, this time around with Barnes and Noble could really hurt me there. Uh, the this if you and you knew that was going to happen, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the if you want to make as much money as possible on the front end, which I don't necessarily advocate, but if that is your goal, then you could go through self-publishing, but you will it will be incumbent upon you to spread the word, do all the marketing, and acquire those customers, which can be very expensive. I mean, think of it as selling a product. It is not necessarily inexpensive to do that. Uh, right. Your, your profits will get eaten pretty quickly. And that's, if you look at, I think her name is Amanda Hawking, or Hawking, who sold several million books self-published and then signed with the traditional publisher precisely for that business. Uh, for that reason, she did not want to run a business. Uh, I think we are headed to a time when the internet is going to be like, cable television in more ways than one, where we'll have, instead of one Oprah, 500 Oprahs in 500 verticals. And that opens up a lot of opportunity. What we what that also brings along is a lot of noise. And uh, mm-hmm. this, people, I think, talk about how great it is that anyone can self-publish on Amazon, and I do think that's a good thing. But the side effect of that is that you, ha- you are competing now against anyone who can self-publish uh, and also anyone who can who can promote something that is self-published or traditionally published. And that just creates a lot of noise. Uh, so the, the importance of marketing, as I've defined it, uh, promotion, micro-serialization, i.e. getting your content excerpted in the right places, is going to become increasingly important. Um, and I think for fiction, fiction can rely more on the product itself for... Uh, for viral spread, mm-hmm. and in many cases it has to. Nonfiction, you can use marketing to hit the bestseller list potentially for a week. You need really, really good content to stick around. And so I would, it would be remiss of me not to say your writing has to be good. And what that means is you have a consistent voice. You don't need to be Shakespeare to write well. Consistent voice. And read some books on the craft, like On Writing Well is a great book. Bird by Bird for the psychological process of writing a book is fantastic. Yeah, I have to reiterate that one. That one, that one got me through a lot of writer's block. Yeah, you need it. And uh, Stephen King's book on writing, excellent. Even if you're a nonfiction writer, lighter, I think it's letters, letters to a fiction writer are also very, very helpful for getting through those tough periods. And uh, yeah, that's about all I have to say about that right now. But <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Well, a bit more clarity. Yeah, no, that that really helps, and, and it helps me as a as a future publisher as well, because um, I've had that debate in my head too, and I'm just curious. Uh, so, thank you. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, if possible, would you be able to answer this question? What's your next four hour book going to be about? If you have one, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have another four hour book. Uh, I, I actually, I, I view this as the trilogy. I view this as kind of the final installment in the trilogy. I might change my mind about that, but. Mm-hmm. For the time being, you know, I've been kind of the four-hour guy since 2007, and I'm, I'm ready for something new. I, it doesn't mean I won't use all of the principles in the books. I'm sure I will. But uh, I think the four-hour moniker for me has kind of run its course, and I'm very happy with it. Extremely proud of this last book. I think even more so potentially than the others. But uh, ready to disappear for a while and go off the grid for a bit. 
retirement <laughs> for, for a little bit and then uh, come back and try something different. Yeah, well, I know, uh, you know, I know I'm looking forward to whatever you have next and, and you know, you deserve your uh, mini retirement, like you say, in the four hour work week. And, you know, thank you again for all the work that you've done that you've done. I really look forward to diving into the uh, four hour chef and I'll maybe send you some pictures of stuff that I've cooked up, um, you know, archery or whatever. And uh, if you have any final words of advice to the smart passive income audience to, to help us all achieve our goals in business and in life, you know, one piece of advice that you've learned from all your experience in business, entrepreneurship, startups, anything, um, we would love to hear it. Uh, I would just just say, uh, you know, I have, I have my copy of Letters from a Stoic next to me right now, uh, which I've had for many years. Just this, remember that life is short, uh, and life can end very unexpectedly, and that's not a depressing thing. It's a very practical thing to keep in mind. Uh, and you know, I'm 35 now. I've had a number of very good friends pass away from disease or accidents. And you are not guaranteed to plan in, let's say, a deferred life span, uh, plan type of fashion and get what you want in the end. So really seize the day to take those things you've postponed, uh, whether that's you know, a trip with the family or learning the guitar and sharing that with your family, whatever, take these things that you've put on the shelf and dust them off and really tackle them. And I've talked about this before, but it's sometimes the most unrealistic things that are the easiest to attain because no one's trying to do them or very few people are ever aiming for them. The world's so busy aiming for base hits uh, that it's, it's oftentimes easier to really go for the home run Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, be aggressive about it. And uh, there are tools that can help you, whether it's in my books or elsewhere. And I would just say, remember the life is short and make the most of it. Right. And, and to kind of play along that, I'm going to finish up with a quote from For Our Work Week. What we fear doing most is usually what we most need to do. Exactly right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks. Bye. As I said before, there are so many more questions I would have loved to ask Tim, but we reached an hour pretty quickly and I didn't want to take too much of his time. He's obviously a busy man. If you really want to see how much Tim is doing for the promotion of his book, I'll put a link to a post he published on his blog that, that just shows exactly what blogs he's done interviews for, what shows he's been on, and websites he's done articles for. It's crazy. As one of my readers said, he basically carpet bombed the internet with his marketing strategy. So yes, he's putting in more than four hours of work per week, but he's doing exactly what he needs to do to get the word out there. And it's working. We'll see where he ends up on the bestseller list, if at all. But you know, it's all about putting in the work now so you can reap the benefits later. And that's exactly what he's doing. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Again, get all the links and resources at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 51. Thank you all for sending in your questions and congratulations to Ryan, Naomi, JP, Marjorie, Neil, Liz, and Greg uh, for winning copies of The 4-Hour Chef. If you haven't heard from me, if you're a winner and you haven't heard from me yet, you will get an email from me very soon. Uh, and some of the questions I asked, I was going to ask anyway. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Thank you all for your support. I'll see you in session 52. Stay safe, stay warm, and stay productive. Thank you all. Talk to you soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.